You want to sit here? Well, good afternoon and uh, welcome to the Scottish Power um, event. I'm Ian McQuirter from the Sunday Herald and um, it's my immense privilege to introduce um, Billy Bragg, uh, rock star, folk revivalist, constitutionalist. Author. Um, author. He's very proud that he's got I his am. sticker today. Saying I've, got a, I've got a badge with it on somewhere. Look, author. That's right. I've been in the author's tent drinking the author's drink, right. looking at the authors, trying to work out what they do. Sit he's around and talk most of the time. That's right. Next time he's going to Glastonbury, he wants one with a musician written on it. That's right, no. Anyways, um, Billy's, uh, as well as being an incredibly well-preserved product of the 1930s, 70s... 30s? 1970s <laughs> and 80s rock milieu. Uh, a, a, a quality he puts down to his addiction is he tells me to reference books and Trivial Pursuit, whereas his contemporaries Have one vice and stick drugs. to it. That's my advice. <laughs> don't, don't spread your vices. Yeah. Concentrate. Anyway, he has managed to... <laughs> Part of my problem is I, I, I missed my flight up here last night, so to get here this morning I had to get a flight at 7 o'clock from Exeter, which meant checking in at 6, which meant getting up, uh, leaving home at 5, which meant getting up at 4, which meant drinking a heck of a lot of coffee and beer with you this afternoon. So I have to worry on you, folks, I'm a bit <laughs> wired. It's a bit wired. Okay, well, moving, moving swiftly on. <laughs> I mean, swiftly, what swiftly. What being one the of Billy's main claims to fame is that he has almost single-handedly rescued English nationalism from the arms of extremists, the British National Party, and the old-style racist flag wavers, which is quite an achievement because, uh, you know, you know it's, uh, British National Party is the most successful far-right party in British history, and most recently um, it struck in the, the backyard of the Bard of Barking, as he's sometimes called, because, uh, of course, they became opposition leaders in a local uh, council there, which revived Billy's interest in the need to salvage uh, patriotism from the grasp of the far right. And, and what's been very interesting, if we can just start our conversation about this, is that you, you draw in your book the paradox, um, or the contradiction, if you like, between the fact that, you know, you've got the British National Party in England, which is extreme right wing, it's racist, it's objectionable and authoritarian. You have the Scottish National Party in Scotland, which you rightly mm. credit as being a civic nationalist mm. party, very open, wants a, wants an, a free immigration policy has a first Scottish um, Muslim MSP elected yeah. in the last election, which is a great tribute, a shocking yeah. reflection mm. on the state of the Scottish Parliament that that is the first um, non-white MSP elected, but all credit for the SNP for making sure he was elected. So, I mean, it's very interesting about that. How do you come to terms with that? Well, um, entirely in the book, The Progressive Patriot was a provocation. I knew, I knew it would set people's... Uh, 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 criticisms off, particularly because my, my audience, I think, in, in the book is, is the, the, the traditional leftist who, who uh, rejects all forms of nationalism in favour of internationalism. And let me tell you, as a patriot, as an English patriot, I'm still an internationalist. It's not either or. And just as any of us who are from the progressive tradition understand that there are many different types of socialism, the, the, the existence of the Scottish National Party suggests that there are many different types of patriotism as well. There's not just one single type of flag-waving, imperial, British, English patriotism. There are different degrees, and there have been other examples. I would cite William Blake, I would, I would think of George Orwell, 
I would put Johnny Rotten yeah. in there as well. Mm. Uh, uh, <laughs> seriously, as people who had a vision of England, a different vision of England from the, the traditional vision, in the same way that, that what the SNP stand for is different from the, the, uh, you know, the white heather club idea of what Scotland is, which is still out there in, in some people's minds. And this, this notion of, of using um, a different kind of national solidarity as a way of uh, creating a, a better society or a climate in which that better society can be made. Yeah. I think in Scotland, you're further down that road towards uh, uh, using that, that um, national solidarity than we are in England. We really yeah. haven't got our heads around it at all. Yeah, and it's worth bearing in mind that there was a struggle involved in Scotland because yeah. some of the people who uh, were around the fringes of the Scottish National Party when, among its creators in the 1930s were far-right individuals too. Yeah. And there's also been a long strand which has died out in the last two decades of a rather poisonous kind of anti-English racism. Yep which you used to get in the mm. Scottish National Party. I mean, there may still be some elements up there in a kind of subterranean I level, mean, but it's very, it's very difficult to identify yeah. it now. But, but maybe it's just that in England, I mean, people who were progressive patriots like that just felt that because of the history of empire, you know, it would be slightly indecent for them to express it too late. Yeah, you talk as if there were no Scottish people in the empire. I mean, oh, you know. No, no, the Scots, the, the Scots I, were the shock troops yeah, of the empire. I mean, you they know, provided the empire's civil service. Yeah, well, I'm not exaggerating trying, the Scots Trying to leave us with the blame for the British empire is slightly... <laughs> We are aware that the Scots and the Welsh and the Irish too, to some extent, are quite, are quite happy to do that. I think the real difference that, that on this debate for us as, as English people, or rather I would say as people who live in England, because I think that's a better way to discuss, mm. or rather to define the Scottish uh, identity that the SNP talk about, mm. is the people who, who live in Scotland uh, and share this space. And I'm very much in favour of this definition as, of, of Englishness as being a, a space that we occupy together in which uh, uh, the space is more important than race. Where you are mm -hmm. is more important than where you're from. And, and so yeah. as English people, we have uh, difficulty in grasping these ideas because we do not have a border between ourselves and Westminster. And I think that's what makes the difference for you in Scotland. You, you've always had that, that conscious uh, distance between yourselves and central government. We don't have that. And in some ways, an English parliament, in a psychological sense, wouldn't really be that different from a British parliament for us because we would still have no border. So in some ways, particularly looking at, uh, at what Alex Salmon has been saying this week, um, I think our future as, as, uh, uh, as neighbours, uh, but also as British citizens, is in a devolved United Kingdom rather than an independent United so Kingdom. So an English Parliament? No. 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 This is, the, this is the interesting difference. I have to say at this point that the issue of whether Scotland should be independent, I think, is a matter for the Scottish people. And, and, and until, until you've, you've you know, shown us that you're going to make that decision, we're, forgive us if in England if we, we sit on our hands <laughs> a little bit on, that, on the independence idea. But what is more interesting to me as someone who lives in the southwest of England would be a regional parliament with the same powers as the Scottish parliament in Plymouth, say, let's say Plymouth, you know, perhaps somewhere else, but let's just say Plymouth. Mm -hmm. If there was a parliament in Plymouth that, that could raise taxes, that could uh, alter um, the fees that uh, people pay for um, care, uh, elderly, care for the elderly, that would be a huge vote, vote we're in the southwest. We have a huge uh, elderly population in the southwest of people retiring. If we could... Um, 
do something about uh, tuition fees at universities, vary what's being done by central government, I think that would be a vote winner if that brought students into our area. So there's a real positive future for that kind of, of properly devolved regionalism. It has been, you know, there was a referendum in the northeast and it failed, but my, my sense of that was because people in the northeast looked at Scotland and realised what they were being offered was, was uh, well, not, not comparable, not in the slightest way comparable with the, the, uh, the devolution that the Scottish people not only have currently, but clearly, and I think, although Salmond obviously is, is uh, his hope is some kind of uh, independence, I think a much more uh, practical uh, uh, result would be more devolved powers from Westminster to, to yeah. the Scottish people. And I think that's the attractive model, is uh, an England of regional parliaments uh, that, that we still rely on Westminster for some issues, mm. but, yeah. but really it's a, um, you know, a, 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 a United Kingdom of nations and regions. Well, you, you live in Dorset now, yeah. an area I know very well. I lived there for a while too, and I was very conscious that a lot of the problems people had there vis-a-vis -vis this sort of city-state of London, yeah. which is only a couple of hours away, but yeah. it could be a uh, universe away, yeah. are very similar to the kinds of problems people are facing up here. You know, yeah, of course, of course. Kind of and and, and, and just, like, just like the Scottish model, mm. we would, in the southwest, hope to get the English to pay for all our uh, privileges as well. <laughs> so that would be... That would be something yeah. we'd also be trying to work out how to do. The only, the only difference was that... By the English, I mean yeah. those rich people in the South East and London, you know. You know what I mean. The only difference was that the people there didn't have... There wasn't any political expression of this. I mean, well, they had the problems, but enough, there was no kind of me, way of it being articulated. Let me, let me share an experience I had when, um, about five years ago, we did have... There was a meeting at Exeter University of... Uh, people from all different political parties to, to create the idea, you know, to debate the idea of a southwest region, how, you know, how that might work. It was, it was actually organised by Labour activists, but it, but it attempted to, to match uh, the Scottish Convention to that sort of thing. And in fact, we had uh, uh, one of the churchmen who sat on the Scottish Convention came and spoke to us to talk about the experiences of how the Scottish Convention jump-started this whole mm. idea. And it was, a, it was a great gathering. Um, it, one of the problems were that there were um, a number of men who came dressed as, uh, uh, if you've got that long a memory, uh, McDougall's flower graders in bowler hats and suits, who were from UKIP, who, yeah. who uh, wanted to say that this regional idea was all a plot from Brussels yeah, to take to over our Britain. country. Mm. Yeah, um, that's right. They were the first. Right. The second group of people that we had to deal with were a load of beardy weirdies who wanted the... Uh, the, the refounding of the Anglo-Saxon state of Wessex, and we, we just... And then there were the Morris dancers. No, not Morris dancers, no. These were more kind of like um, uh, uh, Lord, Lord uh, uh, Bath and those kind of guys. Mm. They were a bit weird, Anglo-Saxonists. But the whole thing was, was put into startling per perspective halfway through when the doors at the back flung open, the wail of bagpipes was heard, and in walked these geezers in kilts and bagpipes with a big black and white flag who were the Cornish people who wanted their own bloody country. So... <laughs> <laughs> it, all, it all went, unfortunately, uh, uh, pear-shaped from there on. But there is a notion that, you know, if, if uh, I have a lot of respect for, um, for localism and for, again, for the, the uh, indigenous languages. I think the great thing that the Welsh have managed to do by keeping their language alive and now building on it uh, is, is perhaps a, a, a lesson to us all uh, about our, our own national identities. Um, the... the, the Cornish language has, currently has three different groups arguing over which version of Cornish it should be. So as a viable way forward to help 
the southwest get uh, better, better uh, um, public services, better resources from the centre. I don't think Cornish nationalism well, is a vehicle yeah. for that. But a, a region in which Cornwall plays a key role, in which the the the, uh, the for the because of, I mean Cornwall is in you know out of season is as extreme from, from, from London sure. as John mm. well, literally, geographically, but, mm. but has the same problems uh, mm. uh, as uh, in the extremity of the country. And they desperately need something that, that plugs them into their own self-determination. Yeah. So the South West that recognised the, the importance of the Cornish role, but, but took in Bristol yeah. and took in uh, uh, you know, Bournemouth and, and, and Exeter, would be, I think would be a very positive thing. Okay, well, so the, the route to, to English regionalism is a, a long and winding one at the moment. Which you guys are in charge of, which uh, is a bit scary. How's that? Well, because unless you, unless you keep pushing down this regional route, as yeah. lot, you know, the debate about this and, and the effects that the debate about independence or devolution in Scotland, the knock-on effect for the rest of the Union is, is considerable. Mm. You know, the decisions that you make in the next five or ten years, the, the, the amount of devolution that you are able to, uh, to gain uh, and what you do with it, and whether or not it's beneficial, we're, we're watching, not because we're, we want our necessary... There are people who want an English Parliament, but, but the regional dimension, the devolution dimension, the yeah. localism is, is much more important, has much more potential to help places. Because I think, you know, this, if there was a southwest regional government and a north, northeast and, and Scotland would have more things yeah. in common with each other than we do with the southeast. Sure. We could change that, potentially change the balance of power and help those regions that really need a lot of yeah. help. Okay, well, we'll see, we'll see what happens there. But the other big theme of your book is the long march towards civil rights and... Yeah. Uh, human rights and your own campaign for a Bill of Rights, a bit yep. written Bill of Rights. Now, you must, must be very gratified that the new Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, is at least looking seriously yeah. at something along those lines. I mean, is that the kind of thing you're, you've been looking at? I'm very, I'm very encouraged by the noises that have been made since the, uh, since the transition. My worry is that, that uh, the Brownites are talking a lot about symbols, having a British day. And, and uh, you know, everybody having the Union Jack. I really don't think that's the way to go, mm. particularly when these ideas are, are, are broadening. You know, I think the idea of, uh, of uh, uh, um, finding a symbol that unifies us as citizens, as a society rather than as a nation, mm. nationalism, is more important. I happen to have changed my opinion a little about the Union Jack. I remember the first time I ever played a song called Take Down the Union Jack. By coincidence, it happened to be uh, in, here in Edinburgh, and uh, I was immediately courted by a bunch of um, uh, uh, Scots Nats MSPs who came backstage, and we ended up sitting in the hotel all night drinking and talking these things through. But one of the strengths that we have, I think, as, as British citizens, is that all of us have two flags. Wherever we're from, I have the flag of Britain and I have the flag of England, my birth country. Some of you may have the flag of Scotland. My wife happens to have the flag of Trinidad and Tobago. She was born there. Uh, her parents were British, but she was born there and lived there until she was six when she came to England. But she still has a strong sense of her own Trinidadian identity, never more so than when England were drawn against Trinidad in the World Cup. <laughs> Last year, and she suddenly came over all Trinidad on my ass. And, and, said, and a lot of people in Scotland supported Trinidad. Of course, and she said, she said to me, uh, next door put up the flag of St George, and the other side put up the Union Jack. She said to me, wouldn't it be great if we could put up the, the, the flag of Trinidad and Tobago? And you know what the internet is like these days. You know, and in 48 hours, you know, it come down the tube. And so I'm like, ta-da! She said, what's that? 
I said, it's the flag of Trinidad and Tobago, sweetheart. She said, brilliant. Stick it up the flagpole. We haven't, we haven't got a flagpole, but I tied it to our front balcony uh, uh, to, to, um, and, uh, to a, to a, a, a mop pole. Because mm. um, it was big as well. It was bigger than next door's flag of St. George. It was great. <laughs> and it was big. And everybody could see it in the village. And everyone could see it on the beach. And there it was, flapping in the breeze, the flag of Trinidad and Tobago. Everyone in the village, because Juliet doesn't look Trinidadian, everyone in the village just assumed we were Scottish. Uh. <laughs> I didn't know you were Scottish, Bill. No. no. Uh. But it was good. It was, it was very interesting. And I'm, I, you know, I'm of the opinion that... that uh, you know, there are, there are some people on the left who don't broach any flag waving at all, who are utterly opposed to it. I'm of the feeling of the, of the, the World Cup. When we get our flag out in England, it's okay for everyone else in England to get their flag out too. It's kind of a way of saying, you know, this is what we do. It's to do with the football. It's for now. You, you can fly your flag. Get your flags out for the boys. <laughs> exactly. And that, um, I mean, that has, been, that has been something that was incredibly powerful in Germany during the last World Cup because when when they had the World Cup in Germany everybody came with a flag and the Germans are sitting there thinking no we can't we can't we can't no really we can't and as their team progressed they finally came to the conclusion actually in this context here in our World Cup with this team we can we can finally put that stuff behind us and actually be here and now in this context and they very bravely got their flags out Neo-Nazis didn't run through the street, the world didn't end, <laughs> right. and, and so although it's only football, or it's only cricket, or it's only rugby, those expressions of, of our identity, even though they may come with signs that read 13-14, I can't remember what year at Murrayfield that was a score, quite frankly, but... but <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> a long time ago, but, but those, there are still powerful steps on the road to accepting. Yeah. To accept indifference. Generates, so generates very strong emotions, though, it even does. now, doesn't it? I mean, you've said yourself, you know, how difficult it was for you to start seeing the Cross of St. George yeah. as not a symbol of the BNP, because they adopted it and they adopted it for many, many years. It has somehow been recycled. It doesn't even have that significance. It's context. It it's is. Context. But I mean, when, when the First Minister, Jack McConnell, as a kind of joke, really, said yeah. he was supporting Trinidad and Tobago in the World Cup, all hell broke loose. Yeah. Um, Labour MPs were disowning him, you know, the... Gordon Brown came down and said this is ridiculous, outrageous, and all the rest of it. I, I, you know, I, I would stay up, you know, I'll be perfectly frank with you, I would stay up late to watch football to see Scotland lose. <laughs> so I, I expect that to be, I have done that actually. So I expect that, it's nothing but a healthy rivalry. I'd stay up late to see Man U lose as well. It's not because I hate Manchester. Right, you it's outside because, now. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, one of, it's, one of those, it's one of those things. And I think we can keep it like that. One of the great things about, uh, the last time England and Scotland played in a competitive match, when you came to Wembley, our repossession of the flag of St George dates from then. Yeah. It was that it? gig yeah. that yeah. when you came down Euro 96 with your flag, we were like, oh, we, this Union Jack, we, oh, hang on a minute, wait a minute, we've got a flag somewhere. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, this is our flag. The key thing is, it took you and your presence to come to remind us of who we were. And I think that's really, really important because people often say, oh, you know, the Scots need the English to be who they are. It's, it goes both ways. And so if you, if you look back to that, uh, to that match and the score, if you want to as well, but, um, uh, <laughs> that's, that's, you know, that's how this relationship between us, this important relationship between us is, is, is reciprocated. Um, you know, it's not all one-sided. It's not all one way. 
uh, and we are uh, we are very conscious mm. of your. We have a sense that you have a uh, compared to 30 years ago when your when your football fans came to London and took over Trafalgar Square and were as bad as anything any England fan has ever done. That's changed now. Scottish fans are regularly, you know, the best behaved fans and everyone loves to see them. Something's changed. And it may just be, you know, nothing hugely tangible in your society, but there seems to be a, a, something both at the same time more relaxed and more confident about who you are and where you are currently. And that's something that we envy because we, we've not got there yet. We would love to get there. And maybe the, the repossession of the flag, the recontextualizing of the flag. We have a long way to go. Obviously, if you know, if you see, uh, you know, if I'm driving and I see the Scottish flag on the back of a white minivan, I don't immediately think the worst. People still think that if they see the flag of St George. There are there are tensions and strains, though, aren't there? I mean, uh, because of the, the way in which de devolution is happening, because powers are being adopted by the Scottish Parliament, because it has, um, you know, the, because of the Barnet formula and what yep. have. And I write for the Guardian Commented's free website every now and again, and whenever I do, I get, you know, there's a kind of posse of, you know, English. Yep, you know, nationalists not like yourself, obviously, no, no. but people who are who really feel very, very strongly about about these issues. That's right. Well, it's kind of like all that money from your oil that we've been spending all these years. We have mm. to, you know, it's again, it, it kind of goes both ways. Mm. There's always going to be that, you know, that that. Border. Do you think it's getting worse or getting less as the years go on? That kind of. I think uh, I think people are coming to understand it more. Mm. But it, but you know, it's not as if it's just uh, you know money from the southeast that just fuels Scotland. Sure. You know that the, the, that London effect—it's it, felt right across the country. It's mm. felt strongly in it the is. southwest, yeah. but we just don't have the um, because we're not a nation. You know, the Daily Telegraph readers don't complain about us. Yeah. But that exact same process goes on, and, it, and it's as it would in any nation. You know, every you know every country has that powerhouse uh, uh, capital, uh, and and those of us who live outside of that. Uh, have some benefits, but we also rely on that 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 economic engine to to fuel the the, the resources yep. that we enjoy. Now you're the, probably the only pop star in history who's written, uh, who's actually devised a formula for reforming the House of Lords, and one which has been taken very well, actually, seriously. Well, actually, Tilda Stockbroker came <laughs> up to me the other day. And said, no, you're right. You're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, what kind of response do you get from from people who know you in your you know your kind of rock music mode? I mean, do they do they pick it up? Does it has a resonance, or do they just think you're a bit weird? It's probably best summed up by, by something that was once said to me by a, um, a, 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 a ticket collector on the London Underground one, one Christmas Eve when I was doing Christmas shopping and there was a million, a million people going through the gates at Oxford Circus. So it was one somewhere in the West End and everyone was trying to get home and this guy was just standing there watching these people go through the gates and, uh, and my ticket wouldn't go in the machine. And he was obviously been there all day, he was really, really bored. And I went over and said to him, uh, excuse me, mate, my, my ticket won't go in the machine. He just looked at me and said, well, write a bloody song about it and walked away. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that's most people's in the business, that's most people's reaction about House of Lords reform, but it's very hard to write songs about Lords, isn't it? It's dry as a bone. It's absolutely dry as a bone. But nonetheless, the fact that we have an appointed legislature severely undermines the democratic process in this country. Even without cash for honours, which, which is even more power to, the, to, to our enemies, the enemies of, of all of us who want to make a better society, not the capitalists, not the conservatives, but the cynics. They're, they're, they, they get their energy from things like a, an appointed House of Lords. And until we deal with that, until we, we remove them and put something elected in there, we are never going to be able to rebuild the trust 
that allows us all to believe that it actually does make a difference if we participate in our democracy. I'm really, really worried about falling participation. That's what lets the BNP in. The turnout, low Ooh. turnout, lets the BNP in every time. And it's because people are given up. They're, getting, they're giving, up to, giving in to their cynicism. And we need to help those people re-engage and, and reform. In a democratic second chamber is just the first step. It's not the be-all and end-all, but it is the first step. And the reason it's worth pushing on that, rather than all the other things that would be great to have, is because it's before Parliament at the moment. This process is going on. People have been working on this. The Gordon Brown has a mandate to create an 80% elected second chamber. And uh, I really do hope he's going he's to use that mandate very, very soon. And I do think that would, that would begin, you know, for him to say, I'm not going to choose who goes in the second chamber of the legislature, you're going to choose. And if it was regionally based, you know, we could start to, to use that regional identity to build these ideals, regionally, nationally based. If you use the vote in the general election, say it was your general election vote, so that every vote cast in the general election elected an MP, but also went on to elect representation for the second chamber. So every vote counted in the general election. Don't need another election. Don't need people knocking on your door. We'd get a proper parliament, a bicameral parliament, a primary chamber to deal with primary legislation, a secondary chamber to deal with secondary legislation. And together, the two of them would have enough teeth to do the real proper job that we need doing, which is holding the executive to account. The problem that goes all the way back to the Civil War, to Magna Carta, to the Declaration of Arbroath, is how do we hold absolute power to account. And although we live in a democracy, we all know of our experience in the last 30 years that if you win a landslide, you've got all, you've won the whole thing. And there's not much anybody can do about that, whether it's Margaret Thatcher or Tony Blair. Our tradition as a British people is about holding uh, absolute power to account. It's about rule by consent. That's what we did before many other countries in Europe. And it's, it's get connecting with that tradition again. Uh, the, the, will begin to, to rebuild the trust that is so des we desperately need to do if we're, gonna, if we're actually going to create that better society that we want to do. Indeed, and we'll wait to see whether Gordon Brown actually delivers on, on precisely those points you're raising. Well, let's throw, throw it open now uh, to, um, to the floor as a whole. We have two microphones, I think, at uh, either end. Is it one microphone or two? We've got just is it on? Good. Um, and uh, if you could indicate, any, anyone in, indicate um, when they'd like to, to come in, Gentlemen up there towards the back, and if others could give an indication that they'd like to come in later, we'll try and get the microphones to you in good time. And if you can remain anonymous if you wish, but it always helps if you say who you are. Hi, uh, Alistair Scott. Uh, Billy, have you ever thought about being a politician? Because you actually talk a lot more sense than most of them. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Alistair. But I've got a life. No, I think, I think to, be honest, to, be, to, to, to be honest with you, um, as a, a small-p cultural politician, I have more opportunity to say what I think. Uh, our politicians these days, many of them against their better judgment, are so uh, constrained in what they can say by uh, a media which is ready to, to use anything, any diversion from what's the, perceived to be the party line to come down on them. So I have a lot of respect for those people who do dedicate their... Their, their working lives to making a difference of whatever political party apart from the fascists. But that, you know, I, I, it's not for me. I don't, I don't look rotten in a suit as well, in a suit and tie. I really, I really don't. So neither, uh, neither MP nor Lord. Thank you very okay. much. 
Hi there, my name's Hi. Oliver Pilly. Um, I was just wondering, um, on, um, just looking on another aspect of your career, um, about uh, at the time, was it 2005, the Make Poverty History thing. Yeah. How did you, um, do you feel that, do you agree with Geldof and, and think, do you think it was actually a bit of a damp squib of what happened there and it was a bit, sort of diluted itself? And yeah, these, these things never live up to their, to their potential of the day. That sense of, you know, when you bring people together, and I was playing here in Edinburgh, um, uh, up behind the castle there, it was a great day and a really powerful feeling. Um, me and Bob Geldof can't change the world. The world can only be changed by the audience. It's actually the audience whose who's responsibility. Uh, the day that that was potentially going to happen. Well, my job on the day was to, was to try and bring, bring that audience together to articulate that idea. And many of the things we did that day was symbolic. Up in Edinburgh, it was a lot more, I think it was a lot more, uh, uh, there's a lot more activism involved here. But even for those people who just went to the gig in the park, they're trying to engage in their way. And I'm not about to measure their engagement by my own. As I've said before, my enemy are the cynics who pour piss on those people who, who try in their own way to, 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 you know, to engage in these, in these uh, issues. So it's, you know, it's by any means necessary. There, are way, you know, be, there will have been a small knot of people who, for whom uh, the events up here in Edinburgh and perhaps even going in the park and watching Coldplay, strange that it may seem, <laughs> or watch, even watching them on TV, may have just cut a spark. You know, I was inspired, the reason I'm sitting here, if the Arsenal Lords, if all the, the, the Margaret Thatcher gets chucked out of the Arsenal Lords because of my plan, it will, because I saw, it will be because I saw the clash when I was 19. <laughs> so I'm not about, to, I'm not about okay. to dismiss anyone's level of activity. Have you got the microphone now, up the back? Yep. Yeah. My name's Ewan McVicker. I interviewed you once on May Day on Glasgow Green. You have a supplementary question then? Yes. <laughs> that wasn't a question, that was just a, a reminder. Thank you. And what role does songwriting and song making have to play in forming or changing people's political opinions, do you think? Well, whether or not you can actually change the, the world or change uh, 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 things by singing songs, I very much doubt from my own experience. However, what you can do is change people's perspective of the world. In the book, uh, I write uh, quite a bit about rock against racism because uh, I feel that uh, this time has come again uh, and there is a younger generation out there who, who don't know how we used popular culture to defeat the National Front back in the, in the uh, 70s. So there's, there's quite a, a chapter about that. But there's also um, the defining moment in my, in my career, as, both as a musician but also as a cultural politician was following the clash to rock against racism in, in 1978 in Victoria Park in Hackney. Now, I went along to that because I felt strongly about the issues that they were addressing. Um, and I was a Clash fan, and the Clash were great. Uh, and uh, the speeches that day were great, and Tom Robinson was brilliant. But the thing that really changed my perspective was, was I was working in an office at the time where there was a lot of casual racism. And uh, I, I was in a minority. I was a, you know, more or less the T-boy. And, uh, you know, I just let it go by. And I never said anything because I didn't think anyone else felt the way I felt about black culture per se, particularly music, reggae, those kind of things. That was my level. And the guys I went to school with. When I went on that march, when I went into the park and I saw 100,000 kids my age look like me, had the same attitude as me, I came away from there determined. I knew how I was different from those geezers in the office. 
I was a different generation. We weren't going to be like them. And that was my first realization of a real break in the generational culture. And the key thing that you understand from that is that it wasn't the clash who changed my attitude that day, and it wasn't the speeches. It was being in that audience. Ultimately, it's the audience's responsibility to actually go out there. And you're the only people who can. There's only a few of us you know, and, uh, up here who are doing this kind of thing. It's only you people going away in your day-to-day -day life, taking ideas, taking thoughts, and taking them away and getting a different perspective, but actually acting on that perspective. That's the way things change. So I say that out of respect to you, but also out of faith, my faith in your ability to do that. Okay, next question. <clears throat> Bill, um, Billy, Bernard Crick, I'm completely with you on trying to revive a, a good sense of English patriotism to match the Scotch sense, but I'm worried about your House of Lords argument in the way that if you say that the constitutional arrangements are creating cynicism, I would have thought it was much more likely that the behaviour and lack of independence of politicians, as brilliantly exemplified by the discipline of the parliamentary Labour Party and on the whole of the Conservative Party, if you had an elected House of Lords, you'd just have the same thing all over again, wouldn't you? Well, and, uh, wait a minute, now your, answer, <laughs> now your answer is going to be if we had regional assemblies, they then you, if they elected the House of Lords, one might get differences within these party monoliths who are the only bodies who can actually run a national election. So shouldn't one really wait until one's got regional assemblies? Otherwise, you'll just end up with two sets of politicians under discipline. No, I disagree. I'll tell you two reasons why I disagree. Um, firstly, um, the way to overcome that, that aspect of, of party discipline that you talk about, to have more independent-minded people in the second chamber, is to give members of the second chamber a... Uh, a a three-term seat, so they're in their seat, say, for 12 years, and they're not re-electable. So they have one shot, so they can't be uh, tempted to go up the slippery pole. They can't become an MP for 10 years after they've finished their tenure in the House of uh, the Second Chamber. So that they, they wouldn't be careerists. Uh, they would be people from regions, elected regionally, uh, who brought uh, a regional perspective to, to Westminster. And the key thing about a Second Chamber um, that in which we took all the votes in the general election, all of the votes cast, and divided the seats in the second chamber in direct proportion to those votes cast, the, the, the parties in the second chamber would be considerably different uh, to uh, those in, in the primary chamber. They would be different in size. The government of the day would never have a majority in both houses. So the ability of the, of the government to... Uh, to to do the kind of things that you're talking about in terms of party discipline, I think would be undermined. It could be, say, perhaps have no whips in the second chamber, have no ministers in the second chamber. You know, if we, if we want a second chamber to be an independent voice, there are ways of doing it other than uh, uh, appointment or hereditaries. And I, I don't agree with the idea that you kind of seem to touch on there as using the regional assemblies as a, uh, a way of electing the second 
chamber like they do, kind of like they do in France and Germany. Because I think then only the mainstream political parties would be electing the second chamber. If we allow the people to elect the second chamber, then we're much more likely to get a much broader spectrum of ideas, to get the Greens in there, uh, to get the uh, SSP in there. Yes, to get the BMP in there, but I'll say this. In, in England, the BMP are the, the party that you vote for if you don't like the three main parties. In Scotland, you have a broader choice. Uh, of practical and in London as well but for those of us who don't live in areas with, uh, with PR elections and the only PR election I get to vote in is uh, the European election um, if you really want to put a rocket under particularly if you've got a Labour uh, council or a Labour uh, uh, administration you reach for the, and this is what's happened in Barking, they've reached for the bluntest object with which to attack the Labour Party and sadly that's the fascist British right. National Party. Give us proportional representation and give people somewhere positive to put their anger against the mainstream parties and I think the BNP vote will dissipate. Okay, I think we're up here. I've yeah. slight difficulty seeing because of the lights. Hi, uh, I'm yeah. Alan Morrison. Um, <coughs> earlier on there you mentioned the way that the behaviour of the Scottish football fans has changed and the perception of them has changed around the world. Um, I personally think a lot of that is down to them not wanting to be seen like the current or the recent crop of English fans. So I'm thinking more broadly, what positive outcomes do you think there can be if you're basing your national identity less on who you are, but more on who you're not? Well, there's, there's always been a little bit of that. I mean, we have that, you know, you have that with regard to England, we have that with regard to Europe. In, in a negative sense, you know, those people who are negatively, uh, you know, Eurosceptics are constantly trying to divide us against that, what they perceive as a large threatening other. And I think there is a, uh, you know, I mean, if you're just doing this to annoy us, um, you know, fine. And it's great. Maybe we should do it to annoy the Europeans. We'll, we'll, we'll start to overcome that. We do have a deep-seated uh, 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 racism in our football. I know you have sectarian up sectarianism up here still. I mean, that, that, that game uh, at, uh, that we touched on uh, at Wembley, England-Scotland, um, uh, during Flower of Scotland, they showed the Scottish fans singing. I, I would like to have seen the Rangers fans, what they were singing during God Save the Queen. I would like to have seen what was, what was going on in, in their minds. But, but there's another example, just briefly, another example. You have your own national anthem, and we don't. Because we are not... Sure not, we, not sure we do, actually. There's a bit of doubt about it. Well, that. you have a song you sing before the football <laughs> games. Yeah. That mentions your country. It's a bit of a country. sore point, I think, in Scotland. It mentions your bloody country, the song you sing. Uh, our, our, we, we haven't got a song like that. We haven't got a song that mentions our country. Because we, can, we can't yet conceive of ourselves as being something other than that British idea. We haven't yet got the confidence <laughs> to separate ourselves, both literally and psychologically, and sing, you know, sing a song... That, that mentions the name of our country before football. And happily, Rule Britannia doesn't mention the name of my country. God save the Queen. Uh, God save the uh, 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 land of hope and glory doesn't mention the name of my country. I don't need to write it, Bernard. William Blake already wrote it, mate. Okay. Right, can I just get an indication of how many other people are still wanting to, to get over in? Yeah, I know there's, there's lots across here. I'm just trying to see, because I can't see very well up at this side. I just want to check how many are still wanting to to get in. So we've got a one, two, three, four, five. Okay, well this lady first. Now if we don't mind, we'll take them in groups if that's okay with Billy, then we'll get yeah. them right up at the back. Then we'll come across to this side. I was mm. just wondering, can you hear me? Mm. Um, I was just wondering, you talk about the cynics and politics, and it's true that a lot of people are really kind of disenchanted with politics today. I was wondering, like as a young person, what you think that needs to be done to help more young people kind of become more interested in politics? 
Okay, and we could just take the microphone right up to the back, please. Just take another quick one. One of the most ironic sights I saw this this Edinburgh festival actually was Alex Salmon, the first minister, leading the tattoo, the Edinburgh tattoo, and singing "God Save the Queen." <laughs> <laughs> okay, next. next I do anything when I politicians. Um, Billy, um, my name is Angela Hagen. Um, earlier on in your introduction, you made a comment about it's space, not race, that's important. It's where you are, not where you've come from. I wonder, could you say some more about that in, in terms maybe of multiculturalism or what we all bring by the different racial and cultural backgrounds that we have? Okay, you want to take these ones first? Yeah, of course. Um, to, to, uh, with regard to young people, I, I don't agree with this thing that young people aren't political. You know, when we were doing Red Wedge in the 1980s, when we were trying to use you know, popular culture and, the, and the, the youth press, there were free daily music papers, a weekly music papers then, and we were debating it through them. People were just saying to us, oh, you know, young people aren't interested in this. You should have seen them in 1968. They were really into it now. Now people are saying, oh, you should have seen them in 1984, 1985, <laughs> young people. You know, as far as I'm concerned, the, the largest uh, 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 demo that I ever went on was the, the, the February 2003 anti-war demo. You know, that, that, was, that dwarfed the demos that we went on in the 1980s. I, I feel that the, the problem that young people have is similar to the problem that the, the rest of us have, which is the failure of mainstream politics to, to encourage engagement, to, to control, to try and cover the centre ground and not to, to seem to be put in uh, um, uh, expediency before principles. Uh, because I think young people best respond to the politics of principle. Those were the ideas that I looked for, you know, when I was 19 and going to Rock Against Racism. And I, and I you know, I go, the, the Rock Against Racism now is called Love Music, Hate Racism, and I go to those gigs and it's predominantly young people. And there are young bands like, people like Get Cape, Wear Cape, Fly, and, and those kind of guys who are addressing these issues. So I think that, you know, young people need to find their way and make their connections. And, and you know, an age profile of uh, the, uh, the climate camp at Heathrow, I'm sure would reveal the majority of people there are under 30. And, and uh, um, yes, space, space not, race. not race. Yeah, um, I think we live in we live in a nation, Britain, uh, which over the years has has done nothing but been uh, uh, re at its culture reinvigorated by immigration. You know, uh, and I, when I say immigration, I don't just mean people coming here from the Caribbean in the 1950s. I mean the Scots coming here. Uh, you know, in the Dark Ages, the Angles and the Saxons, you know, my, my racial type has a hyphen in it, for heaven's sake. I'm an Anglo-Saxon. You know, this, this process has been going on since the founding of our, of our countries, and, and, and so it will go on. And, and in, our, in our cultural sense, um, it's not just about even the presence of new people, the ability of... of uh, uh, individuals to go now through the, the medium of the internet and find culture from anywhere in the world. You know, to, to hear, uh, you know, Gaelic Psalms from Lewis, which sound like something from another planet, never mind, never mind another country, uh, to be able to find that uh, now on the internet, I think is, is, a, is a great driver of the idea of, of, of breaking these things down. And in, in the book, um, I talk about, I'd like multiculturalism <coughs> to, to be a term like, uh, to have the same sort of connotations as the phrase classless society. We live in a classless society. Doesn't mean there isn't class anymore. I still feel working class and I always will, I think. I doubt my son will, but I always will. But a classless society is not a society without class, but it's a society in which class no longer prohibits 
the ability of you as an individual to progress in life. 50 years ago, if you came from a working class background, the opportunity to go to university was beyond most working class families. Now, those, those gates have been opened. Not everybody manages to do it, but the, the ability to do that is there. And I would like a, a multicultural society ultimately to be a society in which your ethnicity doesn't matter. We want to, you know, no one should have to surrender any part of their ethnicity to be Scottish or to be English or to be British. But okay. ultimately, it should really be, when I talk about it being about where, you, where we are rather than where we're from, it's how we get on with each other that, that is actually the, the driving idea behind why I wrote the book. I don't state it emphatically in the book, but the real thing that kept me going and kept me driving all the time is I don't, ma I don't mind where you're from. I don't mind what your, what your faith is or, or, you know, providing you're not trying to get it on me. The thing that's most important to me is how are my kids going to get on with your kids? Okay, let's and, and ultimately, everything else I think has to come second to that. Okay, let's take another group of questions from all around this area. Lady first here. Thank you. Hopefully that you Thank you. Or whoever. Hi, uh, I'm Jim Durden. Why be patriotic and have a sense of national identity at all, rather than just being solely an internationalist? Okay, and lady next door. No? Uh, who is next around here? This gentleman here. Hello, uh, Raphael Kostenbeis Kemzinski. Um, leading on from the, uh, an Englishman, uh, yep. leading on from... With a hyphen or without a hyphen? <laughs> Loads of hyphens. Yeah. <laughs> My favourite type. <laughs> leading on from the space, uh, not race question, yeah. uh, you gave a very nice, um, simple definition of Englishness saying that uh, people are English if they live within the space of England. Yeah. But then later on you said that the question of Scottish uh, independence should be voted by the Scottish people. Should it not then be voted by the people who live within the space of Scotland? For instance, English people recently oh, located yeah. here. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I do think, to give... Sorry, was there anyone else here who wanted to make a question? I seem to remember there's another arm up around here. No? Okay, right, let's take, take the guy at the back because we're really getting close to the end of the session yep. now. I'll try and make the answers a bit more snappy. No, that's no, okay. We're, well, we've got about nine minutes, eight minutes. So. Sorry, I'm, I'm Chris Carter from London. I was... I was You've spoken very eloquently about the English fag, English parliament, maybe Jerusalem as the English yeah. national anthem. But yet, the, yet you seem to want to deny England the institutional consequence of that, which might more readily be an English parliament rather than a regional approach with kind of arbitrary boundaries, is Gloucester in the southwest or the Midlands, and so on and so forth. It's not, you, it strikes me you've made a very cogent case for English nationalism, mm. but you haven't taken the, the logical step. Mm. You've kind of dived into this, the side alley of regionalism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, why, why be uh, a patriot and, uh, and a nationalist? Why address these issues, not just stick with internationalism? Because the BNP have forced all this onto the agenda and we have to take them on on their ground. It's hard, it's difficult and it's uncomfortable. You know, when, when, when Jeremy Paxman wrote his book about Englishness, he went round and asked people what it means to be English because like me, he doesn't know, he can't define it. When Simon Effer wrote his book, he never left his, uh, his uh, Essex uh, uh, mansion because he knows. He knows it completely. Now, it's difficult for us on the internationalist side of things to, 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 to cross this terrain, to find where we are. And, and the book is really a process of trying to do a bit of pathfinding on that. And I don't define it in the end, but I think we have to engage the BNP on their territory and, and take their symbols away from them, not let them have the Union Jack, not let them have the Anglo-Saxons, not let them decide who does and who doesn't belong 
and we have to we have to take the fight to them. So um, sorry, I've lost. I've forgotten the what was the. Just the it's key. about whether English people in Scotland should oh, have yeah. a say about Oh, yeah, Scotland. I would agree. Yeah, people in Scotland, I'm sorry, yeah. And I think to give the S&P their due, I yeah. think that's what they talk that about as well, is. with regard to their website, reading their, reading their website. <laughs> and uh, English, English nationalism. Well, it, I think um, what, what would be the huge difference between an English parliament and a British parliament? I think that until we can answer that question for ourselves as a nation... Uh, I think the idea of, uh, of regional devolution is more attractive uh, because it will... Uh, I would fear that an English parliament would still have its power kept in the south-east and London. I can't imagine them letting it be in York or Bristol. So I think the idea of, uh, of uh, for England, uh, a country of, of 55 million people, regional devolution into six blocks of about six million, which is around the, the size of Scotland, seems, seems to have worked. Um, you know, I would, I would think that would be a more practical step forward uh, than, than the idea of an English parliament. Um, because I don't, I don't see the, uh, the, the, it's, that is necessarily the end point of English nationalism. You can have English nationalism within, within regional nationalism as well. You know, people's, you know, people's identities are many, uh, many uh, uh, layered. I'm sure there are people in this audience who beneath their Scottish identity have maybe a lowland or a highland identity or, uh, you know, even within Edinburgh. So it doesn't necessarily mean that, that because Scotland has devolution to its own parliament, we have to have devolution to a parliament of our own. In the end, it's the practicality of devolving more power to places like the southwest or the northeast uh, that, that I think will be more attractive to voters. Because we don't want to just increase cynicism by giving what people feel is just another layer of bureaucracy in inverted commas. In the end, we want to give them something that they actually practically can use. And, you know, and it's, there'll be pluses and minuses in that. They might decide in the southwest they want to bring back fox hunting, for instance, you know, democratically. They may do something like that. So, you know, it has its pros for the people who feel strongly about national identity as well as local identity. But in, in the meantime, do you think, is it um, acceptable for Scottish MPs, you know, especially now you have a nationalist government in Scotland, is it going to be acceptable for Scottish MPs to continue to vote on English bills in, in the House of Commons? Well, this is, uh, this is the, the, the unfortunate West Lothian question. And uh, I've never been to West Lothian. I mean, I, you know, the, the subtext of this is obviously is that David Cameron believes that the route to power for a Conservative Party that can't be elected is to get rid of the Scottish MPs. And I think he's going to pursue that. Down that path is division between, between us. And, and a, instead of an a, um, enhancement of our relationship through devolution, a rupture in our relationship uh, due to, uh, to jealousy. And I, I wouldn't want to go, I wouldn't particularly want to go down that path. It's a question that does have to be answered. But I, I feel that the answer to the West Lothian question is regional devolution for England rather than uh, 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 you know, a complete break or an English parliament. That would be the thing I think will be most helpful to the economic uh, situation uh, that we find ourselves in in the southwest. An English parliament would would not be as much use to us as a southwest regional parliament. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Well, uh, um, we're coming to the end of this session, but Billy will be um, signing copies of his book, uh, Billy Bragg, The Progressive Patriot, A Search for Belonging. Um, and he'll be in the uh, book signing tent uh, in about three or four minutes. After, we'll go outside for a square goal, first of all, about the football and his, his offence against... <laughs>
against the Scottish nation. Well, I think the best way to resolve that is in the traditional manner. But please, if you could put your hands together now for Billy Burke. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great fun. Really good. good.